0: Hello, I'm Claire Armistead. Before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com.
1: The Guardian.
2: The world is a lot scarier and a lot more hopeful than I thought when I started this project.
0: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. This week we're imagining the future, looking through the lens of fiction and philosophy at the transformations of the Anthropocene, that's the geological era in which humanity has begun to control natural history. We speak with the writer Claire Vey Watkins, whose novel is set in the dusty near future California, and hear how the real world kept catching up with her wildest dreams. Every, every time
3: I tried to come up with something that I thought was outlandish and fantastical, I would discover that actually it, it had happened. So I had to come to terms with the fact that I was writing a much more realistic book than I thought I was.
0: The philosopher Leif Wenar, on the other hand, is imagining a global revolution, looking forward to a time when it is no longer acceptable to seize a nation's natural resources at the point of a gun and flog them to the highest bidder.
2: A country belongs to its people. It's the people, not power, not dictators, not armed groups who should have the ultimate right to decide what happens to the resources of the country.
0: We begin these two visions of what could come to be in the realm of fiction. Claire V. Watkins' debut novel, Gold Fame Citrus, pictures California after environmental catastrophe, cut off from the rest of the United States by an ocean of sand more than a hundred miles wide. Luz and Ray are eking out an existence among the deadbeats and drifters evacuation has left behind, until they run into a small child, Ig.
3: Descending the smooth, dusty pitch of the canal, she looked down at the bonfire and then beyond it, where someone had set off a bottle rocket. She saw the little puff of smoke and then heard the snap. Just then, at exactly the instant the snap reached her so that the moment was ever seared into her memory as a tiny explosion. Something slammed into her knees. She looked down to see a shivering, toe-headed child wrapped around her legs. Luz could not remember the last time she'd seen a little person. The child was maybe two years old. A girl Luz somehow knew, though she wore only a shoddy cloth diaper its seat dark with soil. She looked up at Luz with eyes like gray-blue nickels sunk into skeletal sockets. Her skin was translucent, larval, and Luz had the sense that if she checked the girl's belly, she would be able to discern the shadows of organs inside. Hi there, Luz said. The child stared unblinking with her coin eyes. Are you lost? asked Luz where's your mommy? The girl's forehead bulged subtly above the brow, and she pressed it now into Luz's crotch. Luz, embarrassed, tried to pry the girl from her legs, but the child clutched tighter and let loose a high, sorrowful moan. Luz went weak with pity. Shh, she said, you're okay. Luz patted her back then, unthinkingly put her fingers in the child's white blonde hair, tufted like moraine at the nape. Luz managed to separate from the girl long enough to kneel. The girl squirmed to reestablish herself in Luz's lap, hinged her bony arms around Luz's neck, and sobbed. Luz held her, her dress pulled taut where her knees pressed to silt. She expected someone to come for the girl, but no one did. No one was paying any attention to them. Soon, the girl stopped crying. She regarded Luz a moment, curious, then reached one hand up and laid it plainly on Luz's face, partially covering her right eye. The small hand was moist with snot or saliva, slick as a wet root. "'Where's your mommy and daddy?' Luz said again. The girl ignored the question, if she understood it. She rotated her hand so it lay diagonally across Luz's brow. The child pinched her mouth in concentration. She pressed, then positioned her other hand at Luz's jaw and pressed again, as though getting some information from the sensation. Luz felt uncannily at ease. The rain dance had slipped away and left the two of them alone in the smoky twilight, only the fires pulsing lure-like in the distance. Luz smiled, and the child smiled too. And when she did, Luz felt an unbearable welling of affection, both for the girl and from her. Then, with her hand still at Luz's face, the girl said, "'Piz tin kim ekrit?' "'Tim ekrit?' Luz tried. The child squenched her face in frustration. "'Piz kin tell you secret,' she repeated. "'Oh,' said Luz, "'okay.' The girl stretched to Luz's ear. Luz strained to make out what she was saying until she realized that the child was not saying anything, only replicating the feathery sounds of whispers. S-p-s-p-s-p-s-p-s. When she finished, the girl leaned back and said gravely, Don't tell anyone, okay? Okay. Don't tell anyone. I won't.
0: Richard Lee spoke with Watkins down the line from her Michigan home and began by asking her where the seeds for this novel were sown.
3: Well, you know, I, um, I probably had it in my head for a long, long time as a girl, at least some of the images. I grew up in the Mojave Desert and I was born in the Owens Valley of California which if you just let me bore you with some California history for a little bit. Is, um, the...
1: I'm a sucker for California history. <laughs>
3: okay, good. The Owens Valley <laughs> is used to be home to Owens Lake, but Owens Lake was drained when the um, Los Angeles aqueduct went into use. So essentially the city of Los Angeles drained the lake to continue growing and, and being a thriving prosperous, consumptive city. So by the time I came along, Owens Lake was really just a dusty smear causing various health problems and not as lovely as it used to be, the valley, although still a very beautiful place. And I always, my parents told me the story of what was called, you know, the California Water Wars. And they told it from the perspective of the people in Owens Valley who had felt really disenfranchised and robbed of their natural resources and a part of their heritage and their identity. You know, they were a farming community and that wasn't going to happen anymore now that their water had been all slurped up.
1: Yeah, as the water was literally drained out from under their feet.
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in a pretty sneaky way. So this was all kind of floating around in my head and in my family stories for a long time. You know, in the southwest, it's not a subtle landscape, the southwestern part of America. So you can see examples of this happening. Today, I grew up about an hour from Lake Mead, which gives the city of Las Vegas all of its water. And that lake has what's called the bathtub ring, which is all the rock around the lake is um, just like a blinding white color where the water level has dropped. So quickly and so severely that the oxidation of the rock is different so it's just for me a really visceral kind of frightening illustration of how fraught and delicate our existence in that part of the world is and yet there are these major cities and millions of people living there and sometimes it seems like a little bit of ostrich syndrome going on out
1: there. It's very tempting to suggest that it's a novel, to a certain extent, born out of parenthood or incipient parenthood.
3: Yeah, there's some of that going on there too. I think I turned it in um, about a, a maybe two weeks before my my daughter was born. It's one of those books where your um, my colleague Peter Ho Davies talks about like practicing on the page for your life. You know, so I wasn't a parent when I wrote it, but I was thinking about it and thinking about. You know, that tiresome question, like, why bring a child into this world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Yeah, but also, on a kind of more micro level, that unbearable welling of affection that Luz feels for Ig when they first meet, or the way that the novel pokes at that question of who's going to be responsible for this child, as well as the kind of big picture stuff.
3: Right, yeah, and it's kind of a question of, like, who can do good for the child. I don't know, you know, like, my my own parents, my mother committed suicide when I was in college. So, I'm pretty well acquainted with the the like um ambivalence about um the what you owe your children and and the way you can hurt them and protect them at the same time and you know. Um so, I think a lot of that was kind of just working out like this um I was at a time in my life where I did feel compelled to have a child and i felt tremendously affectionate almost like painfully so to other little people in my life my niece or friends children but i also felt like i know given my my mom's history that i'm that we all are capable of really fucking each other up (laughs) so it was a kind of like a just sort of working some of that stuff out on the page i think like who has a a right to have a child and then once you have a child what do you what do you owe her
1: i was wondering if there's also an element of wish fulfillment there was there part of you that relished burying the entire southwest of the united states under (laughs) dune upon dune of sand
3: You know, I think there might have been a little bit of that. Yeah, I I think partially because I, when I was growing up, and this isn't to say that everybody in the Southwest is ignorant about water usage, far from it, you know, but when I was growing up, I, I did have a sense that there was, I don't know, like a don't ask, don't tell policy about water, or there was just this, like, I think it's part of the legacy of Manifest Destiny and the idea that, like, America is made complete by conquering the West and that thereby, like the people who live there are sort of divinely chosen to live there and they deserve to be there in whatever way or whatever way of life that they they want without any consequences. So, yeah, there. I guess there was kind of some sort of anger going on in there. But then again, you know, I, I also feel like I'm very susceptible to, like, the romanticization of the American West, and I'm, I'm really... A, I have great affection for it, and I, I think maybe it might be a, a very special place, or at least I feel something special happening to me when I'm there. And it's also heartbreaking to think that it might be completely transfigured by an entirely almost entirely man-made phenomenon.
1: One of the threads that runs through the book is this concern over the difficulty of long-term planning, I mean, either as an individual or as a species. Was that one of the things you were looking at examining?
3: I think I was interested in um, different types of time as in like geologic time, like the staggering proportion of how long it takes these earth and these ecosystems to be made and all of just like heaps and heaps of time that have gone into that. And then compared to that, something like how long have white people lived in Los Angeles? It's just like a blink of an eye, you know? Um, it's nothing. It's no time at all. So it's basically like a white culture in the American West has no history, we don't really know anything about the ecosystem or the climate over many, many, many generations. We don't have any types of oral traditions. We just haven't been there. We're basically like still tourists as far as the geology is concerned, and yet we also like engage with the landscape in a way that like changes it forever. You know, in in a few years, you know, we, we built like the whole aqueduct system in the american west you know like irrigating the whole region changing it you know draining aquifers that took like hundreds of thousands of years to fill up you know they've been drained in like not even one person's lifetime so i see there's kind of like collision between like our sense of time which is maybe a generation or two or a lifetime or one's reproductive years or whatever and then like the natural world sense of time which is much much deeper and also completely indifferent to our tiny units it doesn't even matter like our lifetime so that's what I think is kind of interesting is the collision that now suddenly people in say Los Angeles or Oregon are having to reckon with geologic time and I know it's a little bit abstract. It's a, sort of abstract to me.
1: Is that That's what the novel's for, though, isn't it? It's making the abstract feel, <laughs> in some sense. An ambition that, that we could all get behind, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think that, you know, that's what fiction is good at, is making us feel things that we're not actually feeling. It's a kind of spooky magic, right? That, like, those parts of our brains are actually firing up, even though we're not trudging through the sand dune or or discovering this little baby or whatever it is, it's not so good at conveying, you know, my particular feelings about the way we, what we do to the natural world, although of course I have pretty strong feelings about that. So I didn't want to write a preachy kind of finger-wagging book, and instead I wanted it to be very much by the gut and by the heart, you know, like feeling your way through these, these questions.
1: Readers of Battleborn might be a little surprised to find you setting your first novel in a dystopian near future. Did you set off intending to write a piece of science fiction?
3: Yeah, I actually set off to write something that was much, much more high science fiction or much like fantasy, actually. So I wanted it to be very escapist and, and only barely mistaken for our world initially. And then what would happen is, I would get this idea, I would say like, okay, I'm going to come up with some crazy infrastructure project that they're going to use to drain Lake Mead, and they're going to put this like drain at the bottom of it. And the whole thing is going to be just drained like a bathtub, you know. And then I would do a little research and find out like, lo and behold, that project is well underway. And actually, people in Las Vegas started getting their water from such a drain a couple months ago, you know. So every time I would come up with something that was crazy, like, what if there were these machines that tried to make clouds. Um, I would read about cloud seeding, which was this process during the, the dust bowl, whereby, you know, universities would kind of like fling a bunch of chemicals up into the air, hoping that they would form condensation and, and make rain. <laughs> so every every time I tried to come up with something that I thought was outlandish and fantastical, I would discover that actually it, it had happened. So I had to Come to terms with the fact that I was writing a much more realistic book than I thought I was. And also had to come to the terms with the fact that, well, now I have to take these characters a lot more seriously than I thought I did. They can't just be like these hero cutouts traipsing across like a fun sort of like disaster porn type of landscape. This is These are actually like real people. And they want something and they love things and they can have their heart broken and they have libidos and senses of humor and they have to worry about how they're going to go to the bathroom and how they're going to get water and all of that. So I had to take everything a little bit more seriously, I think.
1: Yeah, it got me thinking a little bit about traditional gender roles in science fiction, where I mean, often the future comes up like a kind of space-suited, shiny, silver version of the past with lots of strong men heading off into a kind of galactic wilderness on yeah. their metaphorical <laughs> sort of horses right. and women just being subjects to be rescued or whatever.
3: Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, no matter how much changes in the sci-fi world, like, yeah, gender is always the same. Yeah.
1: I was wondering if, if that was one of the reasons why you made Luz uh, such a very powerful, passive character.
3: Well, I was interested in like what we call now compassion fatigue, where it seems to me like a lot of us have a sense, like we might kind of pretend to be really alarmed by something like climate change, like at a cocktail party, just to show people that like, oh yeah, I share your same political beliefs and I'm worried about this. And sometimes people come up to me at a reading or something and say like, I think about climate change every single day, and I'm horrified. And I just think, like, really? You're horrified? Like, I am not at all... I, like, I completely... I don't dispute climate change, or, um, you know, it's threats at all. But it's very abstract to me, and it's not felt on an emotional level. And I need to, like, trust scientists and good storytellers who can illuminate, you know... X um, island being imperiled, or images of a polar bear on an ice floe, like narrative is the thing that bridges the abstraction of the threat to um, like a powerful felt. You know, I actually really feel for that polar bear as much as he's become a visual cliche. So I wanted, Luz, I wanted to be honest. Like, if I, if Luz was really active, and I mean, she's like grown up like this. Like, we've all. We've been feeling this maybe for the past five or ten years, but she's, you know, grown up with it her whole life. So I, I it seemed to me like the most honest approach to her would be that she would be exhausted and tired and really dispirited and feeling hopeless, you know, and all those feelings lead to a kind of passivity or a kind of inertia, Right. So, in the first chapter, she's just napping and walking around and <laughs> not doing much. And um, the big, big challenge was like, okay, how do I get this young woman out of the bathtub? which, funnily enough, is not the first time I've had that challenge. (laughs) My young women tend to end up in the bathtub, and then my my (laughs) trick is to get them out.
1: It also got me thinking about the relationship between this novel and the speech you gave at the Tin House Summer Writers' Workshop. How does this book fit against your realisation that you were writing for the white male-lit establishment?
3: That's a good question. You know, sometimes I feel like I don't have enough distance on this project to be able to really evaluate I try to just release something, you know, once it's done and let it have like a life of its own out there. I think one thing that I have thought a little bit about is this question that that you asked about passive characters versus active characters, you know. So, it seems to me at least, you know, teaching writing workshops and so on, that the objection that a character is too passive is often given to women characters. For me, you know, being a woman, I'm always sort of puzzled by it because I don't feel especially active as a person, you know, like I feel, and especially when I was younger, I felt like a lot of stuff just sort of happened to me and my job was to react to it or fix it or you know, a lot of, like, it was the men, actually, who were active, like, in my life, you know, and it was, they were the ones who were doing things, and I was supposed to be the spectator, or they were, you know, and in my education, too, you know, it was, like, the men who were writing the great works, and my job was to study them, and to, to know them, and to try to absorb some of their genius somehow. So, in a sense, like, passivity is maybe for some, like, the, or the, the paradigm that, like, active characters are better than passive characters it is kind of a gendered approach to understanding fiction right or that like but then again i say to my students all the time you know like get them activated give them more agency but agency is like a political privilege that not everybody is given
1: <laughs> isn't the objection if the objection there should be that um if all the stories are like that where you have men striding around and killing things and women basically not doing very much then this might have a relationship to the political situation in which we find ourselves and might be something that it might be worth upending, perhaps.
3: Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so there's kind of this balance between like being honest about a given woman character and how much agency might be available to her or not. Are we writing the reality or are we writing the ideal? And I mean, the good news is that like as a bookmaking or art making culture, we don't have to choose. Some of us write the reality and some of us write the ideal you know and some and i try to do both sometimes and just sort of like make room for lots of different types of women you know luz just happens to be one who is kind of um she's not allowed to move around a lot by her circumstances in life and that i think is a, a reality for a lot of women
1: what i was sort of driving at is whether this is a kind of pre or a post pandering book i mean in the essay or right, the, yeah. in the speech or the essay you sort of mm-hmm. talk about a realization that you were, in some sense, writing for Mm -hmm. a bunch of old white guys. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the speech was given, I think, in summer last year, and the novel was presumably at an advanced stage by then. I'm just wondering where the novel fits into that realisation.
3: Yeah, the novel was done, and one of the ways that I see this pandering kind of manifest itself is what I choose to write about, or the projects that I decide are worth pursuing. So I had this idea about a couple who would kidnap a child. And it felt really small to me. And it felt really, oh, well, I would have said like domestic and slight and uninteresting. And then I had this other idea about a gigantic sand dune and drought ravaging the West and a kind of like Mad Max- Universe and it, something seemed really a lot bigger and a lot more audacious about that. It's kind of simplistic to say that the former was a more feminine type of story and the latter is a more masculine type of story, but I think partly that formed my assessment that it wasn't enough just to have this couple and this child and their domestic concerns. Even though a lot of wonderful books have been written about marriage and child rearing and so on, my impression was still that there needed to be something bigger and more important with a capital I, you know, that like, if I wanted to consider myself a writer of the American West, I should probably write about water. And I think that that was me. I mean, I've also been really obsessed and haunted by these images about water in the West and wanted to excavate them for a long time. But there's also kind of a sense of your second book, you know, like, what kind of a writer am I going to be? And this book seemed more important, and I think part of that has to do with my gendering of the material.
1: Your solution, in some sense, was to ram the two ideas together, right. wasn't
3: it? Right, exactly. So,
1: and is, and is that decision a decision that kind of feels right post this realization, or is it? Are you still uncomfortable with it?
3: Well, um, I think it feels like what I was capable of at the time and i don't know i don't feel like in a a good i have basically like book dysmorphia where i can't really see it after i've released it back out there you know if, if i read a review that says like oh this is great i'm like oh neat cool and if i if i read one that's like this is lousy i'm like oh interesting you know like it could be either one to me i can't really see my work from this vantage point but I think I'm getting a little bit closer to being truer to what I really want to work on rather than what I think I ought to be working on to be you know, important or to be accepted by, you know, a literary establishment of my mind.
1: So that's my next question right there. So you've you've had this moment of of realisation that you need to tear down the working miniature replica of the patriarchy which you've built in your own mind, that that you want to burn the motherfucking system to the ground and build something better. So, So what are you working on now? What are you building now?
3: That is top secret. One of the things I have learned is to be very protective of those things that are like in, you know inside, and let them be in coate and, and secret for as long as I can the thing that I have now is I still have I think this kind of voice in my head that's saying oh well this story about these you know sisters say is kind of slight and cute or unserious or they're just this is just like some manic pixie dream girl or something and then I have um, another voice that says to that voice well fuck off I'm gonna write it anyway and maybe it will be good, and maybe you'll be right, that it's maybe it is slight. But, you know, I have to, like, I have to give it a chance, and I have to, the only standard that I want to be beholden to is, is this good art or not? And it doesn't really have a lot to do with what some imagined or semi-imagined establishment says is prize-worthy or eternal and everlasting and all that garbage, you know? I'm just a lot more comfortable just pleasing myself, allowing myself to be the... Gatekeeper, which I, I should say it's not as it's not as though it's like oh this practice in self-love and self-acceptance. I'm I'm harder on my work than anyone I know, and if I can just make myself happy with a sentence, then then that should be enough because I'm pretty damn hard on the sentences.
0: Claire Vay Watkins and Gold Fame Citrus is published in the UK by Quirkus. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. If the future Watkins describes feels all too close, the future Leif Wenard imagines seems too far away. That's because our world today is soaked in oil, from the sea of diesel that powers our just-in-time economy to the ocean of crude that makes the plastics that fill our homes. Oil means power, and oil means money, a recipe for repression that makes for misery all over the globe. But as Wenar argued when he met Richard Lee beside a disused gasometer near London's King's Cross, The first step to a fairer future is to understand the scale of the problem.
2: Travelers coming back from foreign lands may look around their home countries with a bit of discontent. Where, after all, are our Taj Mahal? Where's our St. Peter's? Where are our monuments that can compare to those, but they're looking in the wrong places? Our civilization, puts its genius into ugly monstrosities offshore. Most of our best engineering mind goes into extracting energy from the ground. So if you really want to see the cathedrals of modernity, you should helicopter out to an oil platform.
1: We're standing out here in front of one of the relics of a bygone industrial era ourselves, aren't we? That's right. There's a giant gasometer right here at King's Cross,
2: left over from the Victorian times which they're now reconstructing and turning into Tony
1: Flats. (laughs) And, I mean, it's a kind of extraordinarily big thing. It's a very large thing, yes. And these large things are everywhere across the planet. I mean, they're just huge and they're everywhere, but we kind of don't see them. And they're often surrounded by seas of misery and horror. Why is it that countries who are blessed with natural resources are so often cursed with corruption, conflict? It's so true and it's so strange. Oil
2: should be a blessing, but look in the news that you're seeing now in The Guardian. What are you seeing? You're seeing ISIS in Syria and in Libya. You're seeing Bashar al-Assad barrel bombing his own people. Putin dropping bombs on the whole mess, probably exacerbating the refugee crisis into Europe. What is it about oil that's causing all this trouble? Even further back, Putin 18 months ago going into Ukraine, Saddam, Gaddafi, the genocide in Darfur, Iranians spreading terrorism for 30 years, even if you're as old as I am, you remember the Soviet Union surging ahead of the West in the nuclear arms race in the 70s and 80s. For all of our lives, oil has been giving the West our worst crises and threats. And that's what this book is
1: about. So what is it about oil? What is it about this particular substance that that means that it makes such trouble? We tend to talk about our oil companies
2: and our leaders, invasions and so on. But this book goes deeper, beneath the headlines it's not our rulers it's our rules and one rule in particular one bad old rule is putting us as consumers into business with oppressive and violent men overseas the rule essentially says whoever can seize natural resources by force in other countries will buy those resources from them so for example when Saddam Hussein took over Iraq in a violent coup we started buying Iraq's oil from him and then years later when ISIS took over those same wells, the world started buying Iraq's oil from ISIS. Whoever can control it by force can sell it to us. That's the bad old law that's putting us into business with authoritarians, armed groups and extremists overseas.
1: And how does our link to these authoritarian regimes, how does that cause trouble over there and then by implication trouble back here? Well, think of all of those
2: episodes in the news that I just mentioned. All of those armies and missiles, all of that propaganda, those torture chambers, the bullets, that's all very expensive stuff. Where does the money come from? Well, of course, ultimately, it comes from us, from us as consumers, when we pay for petrol at the station, and not only for petrol but for anything that's made with oil, like plastic or transported by oil, which is almost everything we buy, so whenever we go to the pump, we may be sending money to men who consider us to be enemies, and whenever we go to the checkout, we may be financing groups who are spreading ideologies hostile to our way of life. So that seems totally crazy. So where does this law come from? It's so funny, and this is such an interesting part of the story. This rule of might makes right for natural resources is a fragment of the old world of 300 years ago. So think about international affairs back then. The whole world ran by this rule of might makes right. That was our rule even for human beings. So 300 years ago, the world's law was whoever could control a human being by force could sell it to us. And under that rule, the European empires sent 12 million human beings through the terrible middle passage where the survivors were bought legally in the Americas. Might there made right. And it wasn't only human beings. Might makes right was our rule for almost everything. So think of colonialism. If one country could dominate the people of another country, it got the legal right to rule those people. Or if one country could capture territory from another country, got the legal right to rule that territory. Even within countries, whoever had the most power could do almost anything they wanted to the people of the country. So the sovereign could install a racist apartheid government or engage in ethnic cleansing, even genocide. All of those things used to be legal because might makes right, but now look. All of the things that I've mentioned have now been made illegal. So, the slave trade, colonialism, territorial conquest, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide, those are now violations of international law. Now, you know as well as I do that just because we've abolished those practices in law, we haven't magically abolished power. But at least we're on the right side of history when it comes to things like the slave trade and colonialism and apartheid, but we're still on the wrong side of history when it comes to might makes right for natural resources, which keeps on zombieing on in the 21st century, an unreformed relic from that bad
1: old system. It's a principle that's so ubiquitous as to be almost invisible. Are those the the hardest things to grasp, the hardest to change? That's right. This principle is hiding
2: in the light. We take it for granted. It's been around our whole lives. So, of course, it's just something we're used to. But that's how it always is before a big moral change. The slave trade, colonialism, apartheid, all of these things were just taken for granted as morally decent and as permanent features of the universe. We've overcome all of those things. These, some of our greatest moral revolutions have been overcoming the other instances of might makes right. We can do it one more time for might makes right for natural resources.
1: Is this the job of the academy, the job of the philosopher even, to see the stuff that's so obvious we don't see it? Philosophers look at the big picture.
2: And I'm expecting that if you're listening to this podcast, you're a philosopher in that sense too. You wanna see the big picture and go beneath the headline, why do we keep getting these impossible foreign policy dilemmas from oil rich countries? Why have our biggest threats and crises for our whole lives been coming from countries with a lot of natural resources? Once you see the big picture, that it's this bad old rule, which is sending our money every day to the men of blood abroad, then you can see the connection that's beneath the headline and what we might be able to do to make the world a better place.
1: So how do we fix it? Do we invade Saudi Arabia? Please, no.
2: (laughs) Look, we don't have to invade. We shouldn't invade, we shouldn't even preach. What the Saudi people do in their country is up to them. What we should say is, who rules in Saudi Arabia, for instance, is none of our business. But right now, that regime just qualifies for none of our business. We don't believe that we have a right to buy that country's oil for them just because they maintain coercive control over the country through a scheme of extraordinary violence and oppression. They don't have the right to sell the oil to us from our own principles. We should change our own laws to line up with our own principles and say we're going to taper off all imports of oil from Saudi Arabia and other authoritarian countries.
1: Until they kind of behave.
2: The modern principle to replace might makes right for natural resources is already in place, it's already widely believed and it's nothing other than one of the deepest principles of British political life which is that all countries should belong ultimately to their people. A country belongs to its people, it's the people, not power, not dictators, not armed groups who should have the ultimate right to decide what happens to the resources of the country. If we changed our laws to align with that principle, we would just say, we're not going to buy oil or other resources from any government until we can see that they are minimally accountable to their people, until people can understand what's happening to their resources and where the people could say no to what the government is doing without fearing for their safety
1: or their lives. It seems so very very obvious and and I mean commentators have been warning of the dangers of the West's dependency on oil and these kind of regimes for years, so why aren't we already doing it? Part of it is we just haven't seen the big picture
2: and part of it is the transition actually will be challenging so it's true that the Saudis are now our allies as earlier the Shah of Iran was our ally as it says earlier Saddam Hussein of Iraq was our ally in the short term it's always easier to go with business as usual as we've already known it but everybody who can see the Middle East and North Africa sees that it's destabilizing look what's been coming up in the pages of the Guardians of the past eight years the green revolution in Iran Arab Spring, now these hot conflicts, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and this cold war heating up between these two oil-powered theocracies of Iran and Saudi Arabia while extremism spreads around the world. There is a lot of trouble coming out of that region, and because of climate change, they tell us that's just the region which in the next 10 to 15 years is going to start to get hotter and thirstier as it gets more crowded, which is unlikely to mean it's going to be more stable, that region is going to cause
1: us even more trouble than it does today. Is it just a failure of the imagination, an inability to conceive of a world that's organized differently? The world is
2: a lot scarier and a lot more hopeful than I thought when I started this project. Doing this research, it's become clear again and again that what seems like impossible political changes happen all the time. So, to take an example from right here in London, in 1787, 12 Quakers met about a mile from where we're standing and took an impossible oath that they were going to end the Atlantic slave trade. It was an impossible task because at that point, the British elite were thoroughly entwined in the slave trade. The mayor of London had been the largest absentee landholder in Britain. Slave trade gave Britain its first millionaire. Barclays and Lloyds were heavily involved in lending money. It was a giant part of the British economy. Five percent of GDP going on slave-grown sugar alone. Hundreds, thousands of jobs for sailors and shipbuilders and coopers and irons. The whole British economy was running on the slave trade. And these 12 Quakers said it had to stop. And they and their allies campaigned, and they talked, and eventually they convinced the people, and especially the women of the North, that this was a trade that could not be sustained. And the people of Britain marched and voted and petitioned and boycotted for decades until they convinced their leaders that the slave trade had to be ended, and they did. Finally, they got themselves out of business with this moral horror. It seemed impossible, but they did it.
1: Is this a job, this idea of imagining a new world, is this a job for fiction writers, for novelists? It could be. And part of the
2: challenge of this book is to come up with the stories of the disasters and the suffering and the injustice that the natural resource trade today brings and to make vivid to people what kinds of men were in business with and what kinds of moral catastrophes they are causing and how that violence always ends up sloshing back onto us. The story is there in the big picture. The book tries to make it vivid, but I can just tell you the most vivid way to see this story is to pick up today's Guardian, look at the front page, look at one of these disasters coming from an oil state, and then ask yourself. How much of the money for the guns and the bullets and the bombs is your money that came out of your pocket for something you bought last year? And think of the next thing you're going to buy today. How much of that money that's coming out of your pocket today is going to go back to the Middle East and North Africa and cause more moral crises tomorrow?
1: You've put your finger on what is, I think, a dilemma for what you might call dystopian non-fiction. To make the problem seem urgent enough uh, that it demands the reader's attention, you have to make it seem so terrible that any solution you might offer seems paper-thin. Is that a balance you struggled with?
2: Making the problems vivid is not difficult. These stories just spring off the pages of the newspaper. The question is, can we believe that the solutions are there? And I have to tell you how optimistic I am that the solutions are there. Think about your lifetime. How many impossible political changes have happened in your lifetime? If you're as old as I am, you'll remember, communism seemed to be permanent until the Soviet Union fell without a shot being fired. When I was in graduate school, it was apartheid that seemed like it would go on forever. And then Mandela was released and there was a democratic transition. Even in the 90s, I don't know if you remember this rap group, Public Enemy, Public Enemy used to be celebrating that there was a black quarterback in the, in the Super Bowl, but one of the lyrics of their songs was, ain't never gonna be a black president, and now look, we have an African American president. Impossible political changes actually do happen. We just need to believe in them. And let me just say, even in this space of natural resources, again and again, you see NGOs and activists winning David and Goliath battles against large forces arrayed against them? So what's the criteria for success for a book like this? What are you trying to achieve? Here's the big message for everyone that I've discovered over all these years. We don't need to buy oil from authoritarians anymore. We don't need to be in the business with those guys. When you see those authoritarians and armed groups and extremists on the front page of the paper, we don't need to be sending them our money anymore we have enough energy as we get off of fossil fuels we can go from authoritarians to alternatives we can solve these big problems at the same time we don't need to be sending those men our money anymore we can get out of business with the men of blood and it's as simple as that you, you want to change the world it's not simple but we do have to change the world not only for the sake of the people in those countries who are being oppressed and attacked but for our own sake The violence over there is fueled by our money. We have to stop sending our money to make those countries even more violent than they are, both for the sake of people there and for the sake of our own security, our own futures.
1: You say the solutions are already almost in place. It just needs a bit of leadership. Leadership is in short supply around here these days. So what can a citizen do? What can we do right now? If you go on the
2: web, you'll find a website called Cleantrade.org. And Cleantrade is a website that we've put up to show citizens and consumers what they can do to try to convince our leaders and the big oil companies to get us out of business with these violent and oppressive actors overseas. So you'll find a declaration of principles that you can sign that we can press on our leaders here in Britain to get us out of business uh, with blood oil. You'll also find boycotts that we can do to help convince our Chinese friends to stop buying blood oil from the worst countries in the world. So for example, one of the boycotts is called the toy cot. We don't think of it, but toys are <laughs> mostly plastic and plastic is oil, so we're buying stolen oil when we buy Chinese toys. There's so many things we can do, and the history of reform in all of these areas shows that the main wellspring of reform is always the people a determined people who see the dangers and immorality of today's practice can change the minds of their own leaders, their own elites. I know it's challenging, I know we've been in business with authoritarian regimes our whole lives, but we can see that the practice itself is intolerable and dangerous and destabilizing and we can insist that our leaders pay attention to this urgent problem.
0: Leifuena there and Blood Oil, Tyranny, Resources and the Rules that Run the World is published by OUP. Thanks to him, to Claire Vay Watkins and to Richard Lee. Next week, we'll be exploring how literature can shed light on music and the visual arts. But if you're after more literary discussion in the meantime, you can find us online or install us on your smartphone by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Susanna Trezilian, Thanks for listening and goodbye.
1: For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/slash audio.